Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. The English word science derives from the Latin scientia, which simply means knowledge or even skill. And in the Middle Ages, the disciplines that we now identify as the natural sciences were part of the quadrivium, which included arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, forming the second stage of the standard academic curriculum following the trivium, which included grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Beyond these seven areas lay the highest intellectual pursuits, philosophy and theology. All of it was science. Our forebears in the West thought thusly. One should first learn how to think and express ideas, then learn to observe the mysteries of nature, and finally understand the deeper meaning of life, contemplating not only the beginning, but the end. In Greek, the telos, or ultimate purpose. Science, as an independent source of truth, would have made no sense to the pre-modern mind. And increasingly, it makes little sense to the postmodern mind, too. As the new atheist heyday recedes into the past, real scientists are now becoming leaders of a pack who see the phrases, I believe in science, and I believe in God, as synonymous. Conversely, it is people most ignorant of the truth-claimed capabilities of science who are most likely to pay lip service to science as a crutch to limp through day-to-day decisions without God. To turn Marx on his head, in the 21st century, science, detached from faith, has become the opium of the masses. There are a few voices crying out in the wilderness, telling us about noteworthy data and fascinating discoveries in the fields of natural science that buttress truth claims only philosophy and theology can finally make. Among these voices, none are more valuable in the Catholic world than Father Robert Spitzer, S.J., whose new book, Science at the Doorstep of God, synthesizes numerous advances in scientific knowledge, pointing to the reality of a loving creator and sustainer. These days, Father Spitzer explains, scientists say the universe is finite and had a beginning. These days, scientists agree that the fine-tuning of our orderly universe has no worthwhile explanation besides the will of a creator. And these days, scientists know 
it is nearly a slam dunk that human consciousness lives on after bodily death. In chapter after chapter of this accessible new volume, Father Spitzer takes his in-depth analysis of the latest findings from the most reputable scientists on earth and explains how they strengthen, not weaken, the reasonableness of belief in God. He finally shows us how, for people who truly mean it when they proclaim, I believe in science, God is right there waiting for them with one holistic vision of truth. Father Robert Spitzer is the president of the Magus Center for Reason and Faith and president of the Spitzer Center, as well as the host of the popular EWTN series, Father Spitzer's Universe. He is the former president of Gonzaga University and is the author of numerous books, including Finding True Happiness, Five Pillars of the Spiritual Life, The Light Shines On in the Darkness, and The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, all from Ignatius Press. It is my privilege to speak with Father Spitzer today on the Ignatius Press podcast. Father Robert Spitzer, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Andrew. So glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today. I know uh, so many of our listeners are familiar with your work on faith and science, and um, you have come out with a, a new book now from Ignatius Press called Science at the Doorstep to God, Science and Reason in Support of God, the Soul and Life After Death. Before we get into some of the, the material in the book, I wonder if you could just tell us uh, with all the work that you've done already over the years on these topics, what um, what prompted you to to come out with this particular volume at this time? Well, there were so first there were so many developments, new developments that were coming out uh, in the area of faith and science. Certainly, the New York Academy of Sciences uh, actually put out a um, you know uh, an article in their proceedings, you know, saying that there was a credible possibility of. Uh, uh, your consciousness surviving bodily death. Well, you know, when you get something of that prestige that based its work um, on other studies that had been done, I really wanted to, to get that um, in there. The studies of terminal lucidity uh, and um, also of uh, intelligence in hydrocephalic patients. So on the soul side, there was just a lot of new things that had come out. Um, also on the, the side of cosmology, the evidence for uh, God, a creator, intelligent creator from contemporary cosmology. Uh, some of the fine-tuning things that I've talked about in previous books, uh, they were, of course, just as uh, amazing as ever. But Stephen Hawking's recent reversal of, you know, his uh, uh, position uh, indicating the possibility of an eternal um, multiverse or an eternal universe, uh, he suddenly uh, switched and said, now, uh, even uh, a multiverse is going to have to have a beginning and uh, sort of a beginning is almost inescapable. And so I thought, gee, you know, with him and Thomas Banks and Thomas Herzog kind of joining in, I, I got to give an update here. This is a whole new ball game uh, that we've uh, gotten into. And so I really wanted to um, uh, to, to put that out there as, as, as well. Uh, I wanted also to uh, uh, get in the whole area of, uh, uh, you know, a, a new solution um, by David Boehm uh, that could really um, use uh, quantum theory 
uh, to maybe get the, the mind so uh, mind uh, body uh, dualism problem overcome uh, because there really is you know uh, I think uh, excellent proof that uh, there's a, a locus of consciousness that's transphysical and there's a lot of proof for that um, and so I wanted to, to get um, you know that in there I wanted to get also uh, so much of the good work that's been done linguistically by Noam Chomsky and um, Robert Berwick uh, you know with the MIT press why only us uh, on um, you know the the origin of uh, human language which points more and more uh, toward transphysical processes I just uh, you know the, the case, I, the last time I wrote about this, you know, formally, um, formerly um, was in 2010 with new proofs for the existence of God. And I just said, I, I have to do an update that the case has gotten you know, so much stronger, the preponderance of evidence so much better um, that I really wanted a, an updated version. And I wanted it all in one small book. So um, I, I gave, you know, um, uh, only one proof for the existence of God, a metaphysical proof that I thought a lot of people could really understand. Um, uh, so I, I tried to keep, um, you know, even though I know it's, it's you know, always a, a tough thing to, to read intellectual arguments for the existence of God and things of that nature and, um, and the soul. I wanted to get things, though, that were more accessible, things that were definitely updated. I wanted to get it all in one book instead of three books. And so um, uh, that's what I did um, here. And then I decided to make an, uh, you know, a companion vo volume. And the com companion volume is coming out in March called Science at the Doorstep to Christ. That's where I look at the new scientific investigation of the Shroud, uh, Eucharistic miracles, uh, Marian miracles, uh, and a variety of other um, really important topics. Um, so um, in any case... Uh, um, that was my uh, objective, and I, I hope, you know, that this is a good one-volume, accessible, very much updated argument um, for uh, the soul, the afterlife, and, of course, uh, God, an intelligent creator. Well, I certainly did find it accessible, and I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not a scientist at all. And, uh, in fact, I, I, I don't usually uh, – I, I guess you could say I don't necessarily – I'm not the sort of person who, who – thinks he needs scientific explanations for things. But one of the things that I liked about your book was it really spoke to someone like me who um, actually can find in science certain um, certain encouragements in the faith that I, I already profess. And one of the ways that you do that in the book is by, I, I really appreciated how you number things, how you lay out your arguments in these very clear, sort of easy to understand things. Um, and uh, so I, I think a lot of our readers will be very appreciative of that, too, just carrying on what they know about you, if they know your work, your, your, your way of explaining things uh, to, to those of us who just aren't up on the literature of, of what's going on in these different scientific fields. Well, thank you. I, I, as they say, it was a, a, uh, an attempt that I was really encouraged uh, to do by uh, several of the, uh, the physicists there that... Um, that uh, endorsed the book on the back. They, they basically, you know, some of them were really saying, get, get the updated book out. So I, I did. And it seems too, Father, that it's speaking to not only a moment where science has, has so much more to say about, uh, about our faith, but also, you know, we're in such a different place than we were, say, in 
2010, the, the, the time that you mentioned where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the kind of new atheist moment has kind of, kind of petered out. And maybe I, I like to think that there's actually a more, you know, even though of course the numbers are pretty startling about people turning away from, from religion in some areas. And you, you remind us that it's not in every area, but, uh, but that there is actually maybe an opportunity for us who can speak the language of faith and science at the same time to, uh, to say something to people who may be curious. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I would say, uh, as you, you know, um, in my introduction, I say today, for sure, the preponderance of scientists are believers in God, according mm -hmm. to the last Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And the younger scientists see the overall rate for scientists is 51 percent um, say they're believers in God or a higher transcendent power, whereas only, um, uh, you know, about 21 percent. Uh, say they're agnostics and 20% say they're atheists, but the young scientists, that's the really interesting statistic because 66% of them, the under 35 group are declaring themselves to be believers in God. Um, so again, the landscape is changing, you know, 15% agnostic, 15% atheistic. So uh, when you really look at it, it's, it's amazing um, you know, the shift. But at the very same moment, the scientists are becoming believers. Our young people, particularly the Gen Zs, are leaving in droves. And the number one reason listed by both the Pew survey and the CARA uh, survey, the uh, Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, is that young people think that faith and science are contradictory. It is by far the number one most urgent problem among young people. If we can stop gap it, um, you know, I've made a curriculum for uh, both high school and middle school uh, to have, you know, a, an individual course in this. The problem is so vast. It's so extensive. We are literally losing out of the, the almost 50% of Gen Z's we know who are church going Catholics right now, who will leave faith in God altogether. 50% of those will leave for no other reason than faith and science. Their belief that faith and science are contradictory. Of course, it's a it's a completely preposterous belief if you read the book and see the evidence and look at what all the scientists are saying. But our young people believe it. And this is just, to me, it's the number one problem in the church today. If we don't stop this useless, needless hemorrhaging, I mean, I... I, I can't imagine what's going to be left of us, but the problem is it's needless, it's false, but it is a pervasive belief. People like Richard Dawkins, for example, have, uh, uh, you know, continue with their website, The God Delusion. And, you know, even, even Dawkins has said, look, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm an agnostic, um, because my uh, curiosity has trumped my skepticism. But our young people don't know that. Uh, they're just not aware because mm -hmm. even the, the social media for sure, but also the traditional media will not tell the good news. So I just decided I'm going to write this book. I'm going to start making high school and middle school curricula. I'm going to start putting out modules in every way I can on every website I can. But we cannot let this go. I mean, there are a lot of people like you out there, but there's the 50 percent that are just, you know, they need it more than anything else. And without it, they will not 
even move from intellectual conversion to spiritual conversion to moral mm-hmm. conversion. They're never going to get the spiritual conversion, which is a relationship with God, because they don't believe. Mm-hmm. They think it's naive optimism. And so if you really look at the, the Kara, the qualitative results from the polling, they really believe that this is just naive optimism it's for people who need a crutch. And of course, the minute they get out from the purview of their parents, they're gonzo. And so, you know, it's been really, uh, you know, um, uh, for me, I, I basically left Gonzaga. One of the major reasons was this problem had to be resolved. Yeah. So, um, and so that's where I've uh, kind of put my, um, you know, my, my efforts in the last uh, 15 years has really been trying to get, uh, you know, uh, this off the ground in every imaginable way. And this book is just, uh, um, you know, it's a new chapter in, in, in doing that. And the science at the doorstep to Christ, it's another great way of not just getting the kids to God, but getting the kids, more importantly, to Jesus in the Catholic Church. It is an extraordinary challenge, extraordinary times for extraordinary people to yeah. to offer their gifts. And I think that you're doing that here. Um, one thing that I think readers will appreciate when they open the book is how it struck me that it's not only that people, and especially young people, are ignorant of the fact that scientists themselves are people of faith, but that the problem isn't just a lack of knowledge about science, but also a lack of basic philosophical formation and just a lack of understanding about what is truth. Mm -hmm. And so something that I thought was very helpful at the beginning of your book is that you lay out for us, reminding us that there are different ways that we consider truth. So I wonder if you could just tell tell our listeners what what you're doing there uh, towards the beginning of the book about truth. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of course is, uh, is to help young people to, you know, first of all, recognize that you're never going to be able to disprove God. There's, and so I try to tell people, you know, there's a priori truths, there's a posteriori truths. A posteriori truths are those from like the senses where you and I can publicly agree, okay, there's a cup on this desk. Or, um, you know, uh, uh, we can publicly agree on a set of measurable scientific data uh, that we have repeated or something of that nature. The a priori truths we can all agree on are like mathematical and logical truths. We both know that the same thing cannot be six foot three and not six foot three, like six foot four, six foot five, in the same respect at the same place and time. We know that something can't be a square circle in the same respect, same area of the, at the same place and time. We know, for example, that every postulate that's based on that has to be false if there's a contradiction or the negation of a contradiction is the truth. So, I mean, these are the the typical rules of logic and mathematics and nobody's going to quibble about A squared plus B squared being uh, equal to C squared when we understand what A, B and C represent, uh, you know, in a Euclidean system because it's logically true. And if you deny it, you will contradict yourself. And so we see that mathematical truths, um, even though you can't, C, A squared plus B squared equals C squared in some magical way because it's a purely conceptual order, but we know it's truth without sensorial uh, uh, verification. We call the a priori truths universally valid, and we call the a posteriori ones factual truths. Now, what happens in um, you know the case of when we're talking about science and God, we can't get, for example, a pure 
what we might call a priori synthetic argument, right? So you're not going to be able to get, you know, proof for the existence of God that comes to a conclusion where if you deny the conclusion that a unique, unrestricted, uncaused reality, which is the creator of all else that is, um, exists, if you're going to deny that, you're going to get into a series of contradictions. And that's a great a priori synthetic proof, because at the end of the day, the synthetic part comes. If you deny that there's one uncaused reality, then you don't exist. And that clearly contradicts fact. So the, the fact is that we can get those um, very fine arguments in philosophy. Um, they're conceptual. They're um, difficult for a person who's untrained, as you say, uh, to understand. But I put one in the book. Um, in chapter three there, because I think it's really important that people see just how far a philosophical and a priori synthetic method um, can go. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, you know, science is where the younger generation is. And I didn't just write these for millennials and Gen Zs, these books. I think they're good for everyone. And I know they're good for everyone. Uh, I have just gotten so much mail over the uh, over the years from people who have just said, thank God for you. I was an atheist, but thanks to you, you know, I've come around now. So I know that, you know, it's out there, but I know the millennials and the Gen Z's, they're the ones who really need the scientific validation. So that group of people, um, you know, of course, I want to address them, but I want to uh, also stretch them uh, into the domain of metaphysics. And I've always found that John Henry Cardinal Newman is the best way to do that. He he had a, a form of argumentation, which he called an informal inference. And that was just a brilliant technique. What Newman understood was that in scientific methodology, at the end of the day, everything's got to be grounded in observation. And observation cannot ground any priori truth. You can use a priori truths in combination with a posteriori ones. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to come, uh, you're going to have to ground things in scientific, I mean, scientific truths in observable data. So he said, well, how can we do this? How can we make a, a, a proof of the metaphysical, the beyond physics? How are we going to be able to do this? by using science, which has to be grounded in observational data. So we came up with this idea of informal inference. And that's where you take a whole series of um, uh, truths that have, they're basically based on observable data and they're really good studies or really good, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, experimental uh, data that really uh, can ground it. And he says, uh, get about 10 or more of these um, sets of data, which all point to the same conclusion that, right, an, an intelligent uh, causative or creative force exists um, that's uh, trans-temporal and trans-universal. So you get about 10 truths from very different data sets, really good studies, and they all point to the same conclusion. But each one of them is antecedently probable. So, for example, when I talk about those, the proofs for uh, the soul um, from near-death experiences and from terminal lucidity and intelligence and hydrocephalic patients. So I look at that and I say, you know, that makes a really strong, probative, um, uh, probabilistic case for um, not only the existence of a soul, but an afterlife. 
uh, as well. And, um, you know, the, 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 the studies are so good that the New York Academy of Sciences is saying, yeah, that's a real credible possibility according to scientific evidence. So you look at that and you go, okay, let's count that as one data set. Let's count this um, uh, a metaphysical proof for the existence of God that I give in chapter three. That's another uh, data point. And even though it's a, um, you know, it's a really an a priori synthetic proof that if you deny, you'll contradict yourself or con- deny your own existence. Nevertheless, I just count it as one data point. And then I start talking about the, the multiple uh, kinds of data from entropy or the board of Lincoln and Guth proof and all of these other things for um, the existence of a creator, an intelligent creator of the universe, especially all of the constants and free parameters of our universe are just at the right values. It really does not only suggest, but seriously implies a highly intelligent mind as Sir Fred Hoyle, the great atheistic gadfly who converted to theism, uh, uh, noted um, a while back. So all of these things, I just take one data point after the next, after the next. I start looking at Chomsky's and Berwick's uh, indications that there might be something transphysical in, you know, the uh, processes or metaphysical, as they might call it, in the processes um, uh, of what we call distinctly human uh, linguistics. That there might be something metaphysical in the way uh, that human beings do mathematics, as in Kurt uh, Gettle. And then we keep going around the circle till I get about, you know, 10 of these big data points, these data sets, and they're all pointing to one big, huge conclusion. There exists an intelligent, um, uh, trans-temporal, trans-spatial, trans-physical, uh, causative or creative force uh, of our universe, of our soul, of our transphysical soul, and that he also, uh, as it were, has the pathway uh, to another eternal trans-physical domain. And so, uh, in a way, then, my, my objective is to have everything pointing to this one conclusion. And as uh, Newman said so ingeniously, he said, well, look, you know, if one of these things, it turns out that one set of data upon when, which one probabilistic um, uh, conclusion is, um, uh, you know, is based, if that has to be adjusted, well, you can adjust it, and it's not going to affect all the studies uh, for a soul that just you know only have that um, you know a particular study might need adjustment, but the other ones still stand firm. And if one you know kind of data needs to uh, a data set needs to be adjusted, then all the other ones are still intact. So the idea for him is uh, he calls it you know a confluence of antecedently probable uh, conclusions. Um, that are all in the same range, that are um, basically an uncaused, in the case of the metaphysical proof, but an intelligent uh, creative force, which is trans-temporal, trans-spatial, trans-universal exists. And so that was my objective. I mean, God's out there, and there's a whole lot of data for it. And boy, the case is so strong in terms of the preponderance of evidence. You really have to think twice before you mindlessly deny the existence of God. And furthermore, you'll never be able to ground the non-existence of God in either scientific data or any other kind of philosophical data. It's impossible to disprove God as an uncaused, unrestricted, 
um, 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 uh, uh, creative force that um, uh, is responsible for the whole of existence. So if you really look at it at the end of the day, um, uh, it's really a super strong case. And that was my objective. I, I wanted people to see that, you know, this, this is a strong probabilistic evidence. I'm not trying to prove that scientific data and scientific evidence is going to give you, uh, you know, an undeniable metaphysical um, uh, truth. Uh, all I'm trying to say is you put enough of these studies together and all of a sudden you just, I want to make a formidable case. And I think I have made a formidable case mm -hmm. uh, on the basis of everybody else's studies. You know, I, I'm, I'm just like the, the synthetic guy, right? I'm just, you know, the, the reader guy that comes along and puts all the, the pieces together in the grand puzzle. But boy, all those puzzle pieces, that's the hard work of good studies of real analytical, scientific, um, you know, and excellent uh, philosophical minds, um, uh, better than my own, who basically put all these things together. I'm, I'm just the grand synthesizer just saying, here's the obvious conclusion. Anybody who is having trouble moving from what we call in modest, you know, here intellectual conversion to spiritual conversion, read this book, get over it. Dawkins simply is wrong. The, the evidence is overwhelming for God, not for the spaghetti monster God, but for basically an exceedingly powerful creative force outside of universal and multiversal and physical space-timing symmetry, which has um, an intelligence of overwhelming proportion, and that this conscious entity, intelligent entity, is basically pervading everything uh, in our universe. Get over it. This is where the data lies. Science is at the doorstep. Very well said. And, you know, I, I, I think everyone will be grateful for this synthesizing that you that you've been able to do. And one thing that strikes me is that different readers will approach the book with different with different kind of areas of scientific inquiry that may be more or less problematic to them with regard to their faith. You know, some things may not may not really be an issue, but others may be. And so maybe we could dive into a couple of them. And and the one that I found most fascinating was maybe not surprising to you was your your discussion of of the universe. And um, you know, it, it occurred to me as someone who I write a lot about films and popular culture yeah. and you know, increasingly I'm encountering these storytelling tropes of multiverse, mm -hmm. uh, which I hate because to me, it, it really, it really wrecks the narrative because when you posit a multiverse, well, you can, you can do anything, right? I mean, characters can come back to life. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no finitude, right? And therefore kind of stories don't really work in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us about that. I mean, what, what kind, what, are, do we live in a multiverse? Do we live in a universe? What, where, where are we in, in, in reality? Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly live in a universe. <laughs> That's yes. An observable fact. Now, the, um, whether we live in a multiverse or not is unknown. We can't disprove that our universe is not, for example, a, a bubble universe um, in a multiverse with many, many bubble universes in it. But what we can prove and what has become very obvious, uh, not just because Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog have changed their minds, uh, but also because of the Boltzmann brain problem, the brief brain problem, you know, the data from Thomas Banks and a variety of other things, 
pretty much clearly proves that even if you have a multiverse, it's going to have to have a beginning. And what Hawking is saying in his recent data is that the number of bubble universes you can have um, in a multiverse that could generate a universe like ours, uh, it would be very, very small number. And those bubble universes would be very much like our own. So um, this kind of, as you put it, it puts the finite crescendo on the scenario. Uh, Everything can't happen. If you had an infinite multiverse, by the way, uh, this, um, you know, this is in addition to Stephen Hawking, Thomas Hurtag, Thomas Banks data. I mean, but basically, if you had an infinite multiverse, uh, all of us would be a Boltzmann brain or a brief brain. And a Boltzmann brain, I know it's going to sound like an absurd proposition, but it's like, you know, uh, a brain, a fully functioning brain, uh, fluctuated into existence, fully loaded with memories of um, being in an organic universe that just fluctuated into existence in this uh, uh, thermal universe uh, so that every one of us would think that we're living in an organic universe like our own. But the odds of all of us being Boltzmann brains are so much more probable, so exceedingly more probable than having the universe that we have, the organic spacious universe that we have. It's almost a flat out, uh, you know, certainty that we all would have to be Boltzmann brains. And of course, scientists get really queasy when they have to start denying all of their observable data and calling themselves Boltzmann brains. I mean, it's almost like the physicists uh, joke themselves out of, um, you know, the the infinite multiverse. But Stephen Hawking um, doesn't uh, base his conviction um, you know, on the um, uh, beginning of the multiverse or the, the, the finitude of the multiverse. He doesn't do it on the basis of um, Boltzmann brains, brief brains. He just does it on, which is a probabilistic theory, right? He does it on the basis of um, empirical uh, evidence and uh, gravitational wave perturbation and the fact that we could not have emerged from a fractal system, which is the only system that could, you know, multiply in a potentially infinite way. So basically, you know, um, uh, Hawking just basically says it's, you know, inflation cannot be eternal. And here's the reason why it has to have a beginning. And that means any multiverse would have to have a beginning. So as you put it, um, even though there's a lot more options uh, than there were with the multiverse rather than just our universe uh, in a, at least a you know fictional narrative or something. Um, definitely, it's not an infinity uh, anymore. And that fact was not fully clear uh, when I uh, had written my uh, previous books on this. And I wanted to put all this new data out there, make it as clear as possible so that people would see, man, a lie. You know, there's just no way Um, that uh, we live in an infinite multiverse. That narrative is not possible. How do we contend now with the beginning, even of a multiverse, with a very small number of bubble universes? I don't know whether that is, you know, really true or not, that there is a a multiverse like that. But I'm pretty sure on the basis of the evidence of Banks and Hawking and and, uh, Hertog and uh, Boltzmann Brains, etc., I'm very sure... Um, that there is not an infinite multiverse out there. And that changes the landscape of explaining all of the fine-tuning options. 
But basically, here's what the fine-tuning problem is. So, um, you know, uh, once you establish that even a multiverse uh, would have to have a beginning, even an oscillating universe would have to have a beginning, once you, you establish all of these things, then the next thing that you're, you're dealing with is, well, how can you explain, you know, the very improbable is improbable um, you know, occurrence of even a single life form? in our universe. And the odds against this happening are close to 10 raised to the 10. Not, I mean, the Penrose number is 10 to the 10 to the 123 to one against, right? That's the, um, the um, odds against our low entropy of our universe happening by pure chance. We need that low entropy, by the way, that high amount of order uh, in our universe in order to have um, a life form develop. But <laughs> to be frank, you know, um, this uh, low entropy is 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1 against. Well, that's like a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare perfectly by random tapping of the keys in a single try. In other words, it's virtually impossible that this happened by pure chance. So, of course, in the old days, you could always say, well, the multiverse just has 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 bubble universes. Well, in light of Hawking and Hertog and, you know, um, uh, uh, you know the, the, the data about fractal multiverses right now, against fractal multiverses, uh, it's pretty clear that, um, that um, no, you don't have that kind of option. You're going to have to find another option to explain uh, how our low entropy occurred in the universe. And the most reasonable and responsible belief that we can have right now on the basis of scientific evidence is that a super intelligent creator did it. I, you know, I just cite Fred Hoyle's, you know, great quote, you know, wouldn't you say if you examine, you know, the data, uh, you know, of scientific uh, uh, order that there must be some super calculating super intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond the, the shadow of a doubt. Well, he, as I said, used to be the great atheistic gadfly in the physics community, and he turned right on a dime. He just couldn't explain all these fine-tuning coincidences, most especially the one that was of interest to him in his research was the resonance levels of uh, oxygen and, and uh, beryllium and carbon and um, and um, uh, and, and uh, uh, hydrogen um, uh, in uh, in coming to a uh, an abundance of carbon in our universe? And he just was so flummoxed by it. He basically said, "Well, you know, I uh, I <laughs> I'm beginning to actually believe in uh, in a super intelligent creator. So uh, super calculating." Uh, a super intellect. So there it is. I mean, uh, I think that's the the most reasonable and responsible belief that we can have that the creator that lies right at the beginning uh, of our universe um, is also the intelligence that designed it. And um, and that's uh, what I intended to prove in in uh, chapters uh, one and two. I, I was also struck by just uh, to stick with our astronomical concerns for just one more moment yeah. um, to to think about the beginning 
And, you know, I, I, I couldn't help you. You had a little discussion about nothing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about, for example, the TV show Seinfeld, which is a show about nothing, but it's really not about nothing. It's about lots of things. Or I think yeah. about, you know, uh, or Karl Barth's famous uh, uh, definition of sin as das nichtige, the yeah, nothingness, yeah. right? But it isn't nothing. It's something, yeah. right? Yeah. But you, you want us to think nothing is nothing. So tell us about that. Nothing really is nothing. Yeah. And this is a very important point, which some physicists, including the great Stephen Hawking at one point, uh, when, you know, I was debating on the Larry King show way back in 2010. And, uh, you know, um, during that, uh, you know, thing, uh, you know, I basically had to point out to his partner, Leonard Mladenov, <clears throat> during the show that, uh, hey, Leonard, um, if we really mean a beginning of physical reality, then prior to that beginning, well, gee, um, physical reality did not exist. That's all you can say. Physical reality did not exist before that beginning. And if it didn't exist, then it's nothing. And the one thing we know about nothing is it's nothing. You can't sneak something into nothing. So don't make nothing orientable and dimensional, right? You can't have more or less of nothing because it's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to have more or less of. Empty space is dimensional. It's orientable. That's not nothing. Of course, you could uh, take a variety of other things that are not nothing. And, you know, one example after the next, you know, uh, you know a zero energy condition in a false vacuum is not nothing. There's a false vacuum underlying this, which is something. Mm -hmm. So if we get around all of the equivocations on the term nothing and let nothing be nothing, then look at these three steps. Step number one, prior to the beginning, physical reality, whether it was a multiverse, an oscillating universe, whatever, was nothing. Step number two, nothing is nothing. And the only thing nothing can do is nothing because it's nothing. Number three, if prior to the beginning, physical reality was nothing and could only do nothing, then it could never have moved itself from nothing to something when it was nothing, because the only thing it could do is nothing. Therefore, something else, something beyond physical reality, something beyond physical space-time asymmetry, Something beyond not just a physical universe, but a multiverse or whatever the physical constituency might be. Something beyond that. Something, as we shall see from fine-tuning evidence, is highly intelligent, would have had to have moved physical reality from nothing to something. And that sounds very much like God, an intelligent creator to me. To me, too. And I I think a lot of readers are going to appreciate the way you lay that out in the book. Uh, In the few moments that remain, maybe we could just touch on one other issue, uh, and and that's the soul. What what can science help us understand about the soul? Or what what does science understand about what we profess to to mean when we say soul as Christians? Yeah. Well, uh, what we can understand is this that when you reach what's called a critical point of clinical death, which is flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex, et cetera. So your physical brain is reduced to a few sputterings of neurons in the lower brain. Essentially, you're brain dead. 
And so there's not going to be any electrical activity in the cerebral cortex or the frontal cortex, et cetera, the visual uh, um, lobes uh, and, and auditory uh, and, uh, uh, you know, occipital and parietal lobes. You're not going to have any electrical activity in there. So you're not going to be doing any thinking, seeing, hearing, et cetera. So all of these things are out of the question. Right at that moment, and 27 seconds, let's say, after a heart attack, uh, when the five EEG uh, takes effect, then uh, uh, what I'm going to call a soul hyphen body. You know, it's a, it's not really a physical body that is encumbered in any way or conditioned by physical processes and structures, right? But it's it's an extended sense of embodiment that is apperceivable as visually as what you once looked like at about 30 years old. Basically, that's going to leave your physical body, this soul body. And it's conscious and it's intelligent and it can remember, it can recall, it can see. Not only can it see what's what's in front of it, it sees in a 360 degree panorama. And furthermore, uh, it can hear and, and it uh, can recall everything that's going on uh, around it or remember everything that's going on around it and recall it later, et cetera, et cetera. Your identity is intact. You know who you are. You're self-conscious and intelligent. But you don't have a physical brain that can produce any of these effects, yet people report, well, my soul left my body. And so I'm you know, outside of uh, my, my body uh, looking down upon it. Um, and now here's a statistic that's very important. We can validate that those people saw exactly what they saw because they're seeing it in a place way beyond um, uh, the operating room and, and seeing data that could never have been predicted uh, from anything that they knew. And furthermore, 80% of blind people see for the first time when they're clinically dead. So um, uh, what we, you know, how can that be? You know, you can't hallucinate a, a visual image from a physical brain of a bl blind person from birth because they have no visual images to hallucinate in their physical brain. So where in the world can they do this? I'll just give you one example. of uh, Bradley Burroughs, a 16-year-old boy, blind from birth. He had, of course, he has the, the heart attack. His soul body um, uh, leaves his his um, uh, physical body, he goes, you know, he's not encumbered by anything physical. He can go through walls, he can defy gravity. And of course, he goes zooming through the hospital walls and he finds himself looking outside the hospital uh, at a very snowy scene. He sees the train tracks grooved into the ground and he says, wow, for the first time in my life, I actually saw snow. I knew what it looked like. I knew it was snow. Uh, even though I couldn't feel the cold conditions outside, I knew it was snow. And I, I also saw those tracks, those grooves in the um, straight grooves in the in the in the snow. I knew that came from a train. I could see a grove of trees. I know what trees look like because I felt them and I've been, you know, in the midst of trees. I knew it was trees I was looking at. And so, of course, he, he then, of course, says, right at that very moment as I'm standing outside the hospital walls, I see a train moving by me. And of course, one thing the trains have are very precise schedules. You can know where that train was 24-7 every single second of that train's um, uh, route. So you basically, he says, I see this train is passing by me. I, it has a big sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right. The train goes uh, um, up, uh, you know, toward the grove of trees and then goes off to the right into the grove of trees. Okay, stop right there. How in the world could Bradley Burroughs 
know any of that, which is going on outside of the hospital, when his physical body is in the operating room, he's never seen anything like that before. How would he know about the sign with the big arrow pointing to the right on the back of the train? And the exact moment that the train is passing by the hospital is the exact moment at which he's having um, his uh, uh, clinical experience of clinical death, undergoing clinical death, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just impossible. How could he hallucinate? He can't from his physical brain. He doesn't have any visual images in his physical brain, yet he's accurately reporting exactly what happened outside the hospital. And now there are literally thousands of these cases. It's so undeniable that the New York Academy of Sciences says, look, there's a really good chance, a credible possibility that your, your consciousness is going to survive your bodily death. The, the evidence is overwhelming. Case after case after case, reporting 100% accurate data, even in blind people who have never seen before, extraordinary. So a second area is the area of terminal lucidity. Now, what happens in, in this phenomenon is that, uh, well, you know, it's not, we don't have the exact percentage yet because we don't know, you know, whether people are telling all the time whether they have these experiences or not. But one thing we do know is it happens often enough so that almost every physician who's an oncologist or, you know, is in a hospital working with dying patients, uh, they know that uh, some of these patients will, on occasion, about one to two hours before death, they'll get up and they'll go, hey, Andrew, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've got my funeral plans. Now, this is a person with severe dementia or Alzheimer's, right? The whole brain is filled with amyloid plaques or lesions or, you know, hydrocephalic patient, you know, where, you know, the entire brain is filled up with spinal fluid and, you know, their brain is squished into only 4% is left at the top of the skull or something like that. They have no physical brain capacity whatsoever. For the last two years, all they've been doing is animal cries and, you know, eating, um, you know, by spoon fed, uh, you know, before they forget how to swallow. So basically these people do not have the physical brain to do this kind of thinking. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, hey, Andrew, you know, I got, I got to finish up my funeral plans here, you know, and, uh, I, I, you know, could, can you help me do this? And, and you know, I, I have some incomplete parts of my will. And as Rudolf Tanzi, you know, the, uh, one of the uh, Harvard professors who's studying the phenomenon, he says, you know, you know we, we can't possibly explain this. There's no physical capacity to do any of these thoughts, yet these people are doing it. They're speaking about God. They're speaking about transcendence. They're speaking about having heard people uh, say things to them when they were in their, uh, you know, cognitive impairment states from Alzheimer, et cetera. And of course, all, all of a sudden he says, all these physicians want to do is go, who are you? Who are you? you? You can't possibly be doing this, but they are. And that happens so frequently, says, says uh, Tansi. It's really almost undeniable at this point that it is, you know, it's almost a recognizable phenomenon with a name, terminal lucidity. But the most important, I think, uh, well, not the most important, uh, 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 one really important uh, fact that coordinates with this is Lorber and um, Lucent's um, um, uh, studies of um, uh, hydrocephalic patients. Now, Lorber basically uh, uh, put together a study of several hundred um, hydrocephalic patients. Remember, in, in hydrocephalus, right, the spinal fluid is pumping up into the cranial cavity, and it's just destroying the brain as it goes into the cranial cavity, you know, kind of eating it up, as it were, along the way and filling the space left over uh, by the vacated brain, the destroyed brain. It just uh, keeps filling up until you get to about a, a point where you have one inch left of uh, brain 
um, you know, at the very top of the skull, of course, which is in, you should be incapable of doing any cognitive activity whatsoever. He finds that 5% of the patients who undergo this have a normal IQ. And of that group, another 5% has a genius level IQ. All I can tell you is they're not doing it with their physical brain. If they're not doing it with their physical brain, then they're going to have to be doing it with some transphysical, beyond physical kind of cognition or consciousness. And it's that trans physical cognition or consciousness that we call a soul. And you put together this kind of evidence and of course, it's overwhelming. And then we get into all kinds of other new evidence uh, for, like I said, the uh, Berwick and Chomsky have this great book, Why Only Us, exceedingly suggestive about the unique linguistic capacities of human beings and, you know, the implications of the need for transphysicality. We've got two of the traditional arguments of Aquinas and, and, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine on, the, uh, uh, on the self-consciousness. Uh, uh, being, you know, as it were, uh, having a transphysical origin or even intelligence, uh, abstract intelligence, having to have a transphysical origin. So in chapters, uh, uh, chapter five, I sum up uh, the classical arguments because I think they're as valid today as they ever were. But now we've got all kinds of other arguments uh, from it as well from the empirical uh, sciences, as I said, from um uh, you know, uh, you know, the Nim Chimsky experiments to this, you know, we're comparing this with a very highly trained um, chimpanzee in, in uh, uh, you know, artificial sign language, et cetera, et cetera. You put all these uh, facts together and it very much looks and, and Gettel's proof is very, very convincing because uh, it, it, there's a proof, you know, from the uh, uh, incompleteness theorems that um, uh, in a way, uh, human beings have a grasp of mathematics that could not have come from a previous uh, finite algorithmic source. And so there's almost like this real abstract transphysical kind of, uh, you know, way of doing mathematics in human beings that can never be replicated by artificial intelligence, let alone a chimpanzee who never had an abstract thought in his life, right? I mean, Chim, you know, Nim Chimsky, highly trained, right? He can learn a whole set of perceptual ideas in American Sign Language, like, you know, something like 150 words in American Sign Language. Very impressive, except he's got no capacity for abstraction because he can't even pass elemental syntax tests to distinguish dog bites man versus man bites dog. Can't do it. What makes a little, you know, two-year-old chortle, uh, you know, it's completely beyond them who, you know, uh, uh, technically speaking, can know just as many words, uh, perceptual idea words, but he has no conceptual ideas, no abstract uh, uh, predicates, no abstract direct objects and direct objects. He's got no abstract or what we call conceptual ideas. And that's why he can't predicate. That's why he can't pass the syntax. So you combine this in with Thomas Aquinas' incredibly good argument, which I try to summarize and put you know some modern uh, studies to. Then, of course, um, uh, people like um, uh, uh, David Chalmers, uh, um, you know, has put together, you know, that uh, uh, his argument for um, the, the transphysical uh, nature of uh, consciousness uh, from a more analytical, modern analytical proof uh, to combine it up with that of St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and then quantum theory stuff. I mean, oh man, it's fascinating out there. And, and so what I tried to do is say, hey, you put together, again, it's the Newman's informal inference, right? You put together all this stuff it's really amazing. I mean, 
Do I believe that I have a transphysical soul that will survive bodily death? Yes, I do. And I think I can ascertain it, not just on the basis of my Christian faith, but also on the basis of really excellent scientific studies. And you put those two together and the parallels between Christian um, um, belief in the resurrection and uh, what the scientific data is saying, particularly about the transformation uh, of embodiment and also uh, the transformation in love. If a, you know, 85% of adults uh, go have a, a rather positive experience, 15% of adults have a very dark uh, experience. Now you, you look at that and you go, well, how come it's so disproportionate in favor of the positive? Um, well, a lot of people, a lot of researchers think it's because adults repress really negative thoughts. They won't let them come forward if they're too horrible. And so, of course, less of them even think that they had a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience. So anyway, I, I don't want to get into all of these things, but uh, do I think that the science in terms of the ones who have the positive experience what is the majority of them? What do they see in the heavenly domain? A loving, unrestrictedly loving white light um, that many of them identify as Christ or God. Sometimes, very rarely, though, an angel, but mostly God and Jesus Christ. And uh, they seem to know it as if the, the being is actually identifying himself. Mm. Uh, for the kids, the kids see, you know, um, a physical image of Jesus, an embodied image of Jesus, which looks very much um, like um, an image that was drawn by a, a, a very talented artistic girl who had visions of Jesus, a, a, a Karnak. A, a, um, uh, uh, Karmarak, uh, I think uh, was her last name, but I have to, to look it up. But anyway, uh, in the case, you know, of um, uh, uh, Colton Burpo, uh, you know, the little uh, four-year-old uh, kid uh, from um, Heaven is for Real, uh, you know, he basically says, well, uh, you know, they, they give him a whole series of Jesus pictures, right? Some Sacred Heart pictures, some other pictures, and, you know, and kind of shuffled into it is the, the picture um, of this little uh, girl, uh, who had these visions of Jesus and bingo, he and so many other kids say, that's the one, mm. uh, this is the guy I met, you know, um, and he, he was Jesus. And, and so th that's the little kid experience. Uh, the adult has more of the, the loving white light, but it's, it's transformed in love very much like the Christian doctrine of the, of the resurrection um, uh, in love, uh, you know, especially taken right out of John's gospel. So, I mean, Great kinds of uh, coordination points there, mm. but um, also I think a good scientific base for a good informal inference. Well, this is all fascinating stuff. We have just scratched the surface, and so our readers, our listeners, are going to have to uh, go and pick up the book to to continue down uh, these paths that you have uh, hewn for us. The book is "Science at the Doorstep to God," now available from Ignatius Press wherever you get your books. Father Robert Spitzer, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com, follow us on social media, and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.